Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, today we had a first on the podcast. We had a conversation about crop pathology. Yeah, and as most people probably know, just like people and animals can get sick, plants can also get sick. So today we talked to a pathologist from the University of Minnesota, Dr. Dean Malvick. Yeah, Jason, before offline, we kind of had a discussion about how pathology is an underserved area of crop science. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, when you think about farmers and the amount of money they pour into their crop to make sure that they can feed the world and sustain the world, you know, anything that limits yield, such as the disease, should be very important. And I think we had a great conversation today about some of those important diseases that farmers face across the Midwest from year to year. Absolutely. I think the listeners are going to enjoy this. So let's get right into the interview with Dr. Melvick. Dr. Malvik, welcome to the podcast. To kick things off today, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your background and history? I'd, I'd be glad to. So I, right now I am a professor and extension specialist in plant pathology at the University of Minnesota based in St. Paul. And uh, I work mainly on diseases of, of field crops, primarily corn and soybeans. And so I've been there for about uh, 16 years now. And before that, I had a similar position at the University of Illinois in, in Champaign-Urbana, and so worked all around the state of Illinois in, in the years I was there. I'm just going backwards here, as, as you'll see. Before that, I worked for a, a seed company in southern Wisconsin, working as a research pathologist. I was focused on alfalfa, alfalfa diseases there, uh, actually across the country. Um, and then before that, I, I worked for a short time at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And then before that, I, I worked on my PhD at the University of Minnesota. And then uh, before that, I did a master's degree in, in botany and plant pathology at Oregon State in Corrales, Oregon. So it's originally, I, I grew up in Duluth, Minnesota. And uh, so I moved around the country some and ended up back in, in Minnesota. You have traveled around the country quite a bit, and I, I saw on your on your bio at the University of Minnesota website, I don't even want to guess how to pronounce the where you did your undergrad work, the school where you did your undergrad work. Yes, uh, that is a Bemidji State University, okay. up in the north, northern part of Minnesota. I had seen that, and I, and I thought, well, that must be in some foreign country, but uh, apparently that's in Minnesota. <laughs> it, it is. It is, yes. A, a very nice town, if, if you haven't been there. And Northern Minnesota is beautiful. Today, we appreciate you coming on with us to talk about some plant diseases. And then we're going to talk about one that's really, over the last couple of years, grown in scope here in the northern part of the United States. But when we talk about plant diseases, maybe people, uh, average person, maybe just thinking about plant diseases, doesn't really think about that often, that plants get sick just like people do. And in your role as a plant pathologist, obviously you research these diseases and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about plant diseases and kind of maybe compare and contrast to human health? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. I think I did a way to frame the topic because, you know, the, the diseases that affect plants and humans, there's a lot of similarities, yet there, there are a lot of differences. You know, some of the same kinds of pathogens, you know, the organisms that cause disease are the same. Bacteria cause disease on humans and, and, uh, and plants. Fungi certainly can, are, are one of the major types of organisms, pathogens that cause diseases on crops and certainly can be a problem with humans too, although they're not as important overall on humans or common, as common as, as they are on plants in terms of the overall importance. 
their viruses um, and other assorted things too, but a lot of the same types of pathogens are problems on, on humans and, and uh, plants. And, you know, beyond that, there's a lot of differences. You know, plants don't have immune systems like people do, and we can't inoculate them and vaccinate them in the same way for, for lots of reasons. Although there are certain things we can do to trigger defenses in plants, and there are products that are actually sold that can be sprayed on plants that can trigger plant defenses. Although it's not quite the same as a vaccination to prevent a disease in a, in a person. Um, but in, in the overall scope of food and crop production, diseases are, are incredibly important. And you know they vary a lot from year to year in terms of, and, and from crop to crop and their importance. And like I said before, I primarily work with corn and soybeans. And I think as, as many of you know, they're, they're certainly often grown on very large acreages, um, taking up a large part of the landscape. So when a disease gets established in a area, it, it can spread fairly rapidly. Although certainly it rarely does too rapidly and cause mass widespread destruction, although it has happened in history with some diseases of, of wheat and corn and others. That's pretty rare, especially now. Um, but anyway, each year, you know, across the U.S., there are places where there is significant problems with diseases that that take out a significant part of the crop yield, and not again, not just in corn and soybeans. No matter if we're talking about apples or or vegetables or or whatever crop it is, diseases are are very important, and they're often very challenging to manage. This is maybe not a fair question because this data seems like it'd be very hard to come up with, but maybe an estimate is out there. Do you have an idea of the economic impact of plant diseases, say across the United States or, you know, across some unit, maybe even in Minnesota, for instance? You know, I I do not have those numbers at the top of my head. Um, That's fine. We can look those up and those kinds of estimates are made um, every year, especially in corn and soybeans across most of the country. And when you add up the numbers, even if it's a you know, relatively small, you know, 5% yield loss over a significant part of the acres, and you consider the number of acres that are that, that corn and soybean are grown on, that adds up to a very large amount of money um, and, and bushels lost. But I, I don't have those numbers, but the, the numbers are really quite astounding when you start thinking about how these add up and what an effect they have on, on food and crop production. It's, it's really pretty massive. Yeah, it's absolutely probably a staggering number. I mean, we've had a couple of episodes where we talked about corn rootworm and Preston being an entomologist talks about corn rootworm quite a bit. And, you know, that often referred to as the billion dollar bug and Preston's been fond of saying, you know, maybe even it should be higher than that now. But when we talk about the cost of controlling a problem like a plant disease on top of the yield loss, there's some pretty staggering numbers that would probably really shock some people. There are. That's absolutely true. And, and I was just thinking about the cost of yield loss um, based on bushels lost and you know the value per bushel. But there's also a cost that goes into be, behind that. For many diseases, there are preventative measures taken that includes, you know, efforts by on the part of seed companies to to breed resistance to many diseases. Certainly, there's a cost there, and for many diseases, of course, fungicides, whether they be seed treatments or foliar sprays, are used. 
Um, so there's another cost. So you add up all these together, and it is, it's a pretty staggeringly large number. You're right. When a person gets sick, uh, we generally go to the doctor. We're talking about plants. Obviously, they can't get up and go to the doctor, but we want to be on top of these diseases and things. And uh, we do have doctors, so to speak, yourself, for instance, you're a PhD and a doctor in uh, plant pathology. And so you go out and diagnose plant diseases and other people can do that also. How do we really kind of go about that just for the general consumer to kind of get an idea of how we go about diagnosing plant diseases? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question too. You know, there, you know, what we generally say, you look for signs and symptoms. Symptoms on the plant affected might be a, a wilting stem, might be a spot or on a leaf or a dying leaf. It could be brown discoloration inside a stem or the trunk of a tree, in the case of a wilt disease on a tree. Um, so, so again, that's, those are the symptoms and the signs are actually observation of, of the actual pathogen. For example, you might see a fungus growing on a plant that could be the pathogen, or you could see ooze of bacterial cells coming out of the plant tissue where the infection is. That, that's some examples that we call a, a sign. So those are the kind of things we look for. You know, usually we see a plant with a problem. It's discolored, it's spotted, it's stunted, things like that. You know, the symptoms may only be in the roots. It may not be of ground at all. So it's, it's often difficult to get an accurate diagnosis. So, and because of that, there are plant disease diagnostic labs at many universities, land-grant universities across the country, including at the University of Minnesota. And many companies also run their own diagnostic labs to help with determining the cause of problems in fields or in production areas of whatever crop it might be. So those are the, the general principles and it may or may not be possible to diagnose it in the field. I'd say most of the time it's, it's not. Somebody with a lot of experience can come up with a very high level of confidence with diagnosing some diseases, but others are, are very difficult. And for those people that aren't experts or are not commonly seeing these problems, it can be very challenging. So that's where we need to go to a diagnostic lab and then have specialized lab procedures often to help with that diagnosis. And again, I want to emphasize the importance of diagnosis. Proper diagnosis is really critical. You know, guessing at the cause sometimes leads us the wrong way in managing the problem. If we have, know for sure what we're dealing with, we can more accurately and more effectively manage the problem, either, either presently or, or in the future. For example, there are some diseases leaf disease is that the symptoms are very similar for bacteria and fungi. And we take a very different approach to managing them depending on what kind of a disease and, and pathogen is involved. So those are some, some general thoughts on diagnosis and the importance, but it's a, it's a really key thing in the big picture of plant disease understanding and management. I think that's a key point that you made uh, when you talked about diagnosing diseases. We wouldn't want to go to the doctor and have him just kind of start guessing at what our problem is and start throwing medication at us. We really want to know what that problem is before we try to treat it because different medicines work for different things, just like different fungicides or other pesticides work for different things. That's exactly right. That's it's a very good analogy and that's a very good way to put it. Dean, I was just kind of curious for the consumer listeners, maybe would you mind kind of delving into some of the differences between some of these 
problems. So like maybe for instance, you know, the difference between a bacteria, virus, fungus, maybe even talking about nematodes a little bit at a high level, talk about the scope of the different potential threats that a corn plant could, could face. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Also challenging because I'll start out that almost every plant faces a different spectrum of threats. You know, we think of, you know, you brought up the example of, of people, you know, we have a, a series of threats and of course, new ones are coming all the time as we've learned in the past year with COVID-19 and new ones come all the time with crop diseases and plant diseases too. There are new problems occurring quite regularly that we have to learn how to deal with. And some, some crops, for example, bacterial diseases are, are, are pretty prevalent, say fruit crops, for example. Whereas corn and soybeans in the big picture, fungi are much more important generally um, than, than bacteria, although there are exceptions to that too. Um, so all of them can be important and it really depends on the year and the location and the specific crop. You know, for example, oh, about, what was it? About 10 years ago now, I guess, a disease called Goss's wilt really spread across the Midwest on corn, caused significant damage in a lot of fields. And since that time, you know, the seed industry has responded with having more and more of the corn hybrids having natural genetic resistance to, to Goss's wilt and the problem has subsided substantially. It's not gone away, um, but, but there's a management solution that's really reducing the problem from the high level it was. So again, and again, the, the problems change, um, bacteria, viruses, you know, they're, they're all important aspects. And again, on, in corn and soybeans too, at least in the upper Midwest, viruses are relatively unimportant compared to fungi, especially in bacteria. And you mentioned nematodes. That's another, it's, it's a small, tiny, like worm that invades soybean roots and other crop roots too. But the biggest problem in the mid upper Midwest would be this, it's called the soybean cyst nematode. And that's been spreading across the upper Midwest for the past three or four decades. So again, these problems change and there, there are many different kinds out there that we have to think about when we manage you know, a food or a grain crop. Uh, just a follow-up question, I guess. I mean, I remember my undergrad plant pathology class, we talked about the disease triangle. Could you visually describe that disease triangle and talk about what it takes for a disease to develop in a plant? Yes, I, I'd be glad to. So, so oftentimes, yes, diseases are, are talked about in a crop in relation to something called the disease triangle. You can imagine a triangle with three, three points, three corners. One of those points being represented by the plant itself, and its susceptibility to a particular disease. Another point being represented by the presence of the pathogen or the absence. And another being the environment. So you can think about having the need for all three of those factors to come together simultaneously before we really get much disease to develop. Um, for example, we, we put, for example, let's, let's say, let's move away from Crops. So give an example of, of a marigold plant, a flower. It's, it's commonly infected by a disease called white mold, which also infects soybeans and, and canola and lots of other crops. But if we put it into our flower bed, you know, it may die or it may not die. 
Um, so it partly depends on now, is the pathogen there? The fungus that causes white mold, is it in the soil? Okay, check. It's in a lot of flower beds right now. Is the marigold susceptible? Most marigold cultivars are susceptible. Number three, is the environment favorable? For example, for this disease called white mold, it likes cool or definitely wet conditions. So if you have a flower bed with a marigold and you irrigate it frequently and the fungus is already there, you'll often have a problem. And, and there is an example in that same kind of three-part um, view of the triangle implies to apples, it applies to soybeans, it, it applies to broccoli, and it applies to corn. And if you get all three of those coming together, um, you, you often have problems with diseases. And uh, in a year like this, when it's so dry in many areas, across at least the upper Midwest, you know, we don't have the environment that favors a lot of diseases, so we're having fewer problems than we have in other years when it rains more frequently, for example. Even though we have susceptible crops, we have the pathogen in most fields, but we don't have enough rainfall. We don't have the right environment because of the lack of rainfall to get the disease really started and going. I think that's a great description. I think that puts it in terms that people can understand and I appreciate that. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, new diseases cropping up. And sometimes that just means a, a disease is moving into a new geography, correct? So how does a disease come from, say, you know, we're going to talk about tar spot here in a few minutes. As an example, I believe that came from somewhere in Mexico, maybe up into the upper Midwest. And so how does, how does that happen? I think it happens in, in different ways with each particular disease. Let me give you another example. We'll talk about tar spot, which is a leaf disease on corn, but another example would be a disease called sudden death syndrome on soybean. And that's a fungal disease. That was first found in Arkansas, you know, maybe in the late seventies, early eighties, around that time period. And the fungus that causes it is a soil-borne fungus that infects the soybean roots. It doesn't infect the stems much, nor the leaves, but it's been spreading, you know, northward. It was found in, you know, parts of Illinois in the mid to late 80s, Iowa in early 90s. It's found in southern Minnesota in the early 2000s. And it was found in North Dakota, for example, two years ago. So there is a, a soil-borne disease that's been spreading across the upper Midwest and other places as well, but I'm just using this mid upper Midwest central part as an example. And that is spread with probably anything that moves infected or infested soil. Could be equipment, could be windblown soil, could be water if there's flood irrigation or just flooding. So anything that moves soil could be moving that around. We get to an aerial pathogen, something that affects the upper parts of plants, some of them are very prone to be windborne. For example, the disease, there, are, there are fungal diseases on many crops, corn and wheat and barley, for example, leaf rust diseases. They are spread from the far south, actually from Mexico, and they, and they spread up through the central part of the country, up into the upper Midwest, up into Canada every year because they don't overwinter in very cold winter conditions. So they spread very readily by the wind, and some others do that too. And so those are our two examples. And sometimes they're spread by infected plant material that's moved along around as cuttings or transplants or, or other ways. It's really interesting for me anyway, to think about. And 
And when we have these diseases, as you mentioned, that really don't overwinter here in the northern part of the U.S., but they start in Mexico and they come up on the wind, that's traveling a pretty good distance just based on environmental conditions. That's right. And, you know, people have been studying the, and tracking the movement of those rust diseases that affect wheat, especially for a long time. There's actually something called the, the, the rust pathway and it kind of tracks how it moves up the central part of the U.S. from the southern to the northern. And it's, it's really quite interesting. Unfortunately, all the diseases don't move around that readily, but there are a few that do. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, you mentioned briefly tar spot. was wondering if you could kind of comment on here in Illinois, it's 2021. Um, tar spot seems to be the talk of the town, at least on social media right now. Is there any way you could describe some maybe the history of tar spot um, and then also how to diagnose it? I, I can. I, I'll, I'll comment on that uh, a little bit. I, I've been learning a fair amount about that myself the last couple of years because it is a brand new disease. And we found it in Minnesota for the first time in, in fall of 2019. So that was just almost two years ago. And so, but, but to backtrack, um, the disease tar spot is a fungal disease of corn. It, it, it results in these small, very dark tar colored spots black essentially on corn leaves. They can be you know, like a 16th or an eighth of an inch in diameter, you know, around that size, very small, but very dark. And so I wanna say, as we mentioned tar spot, you know, some people are familiar with tar spot and maple, and which is a, a fairly common disease and, and very apparent sometimes because the disease causes big black blotches on maple leaves in some places. And I've seen it here in the Midwest and I've seen it out on the West Coast. So it occurs many places, but it's a totally different disease. You know, the symptomology, like we're talking about here, these dark spots, black spots is, is, is again, descriptive of the disease, but it's very different. Those are much bigger than the tar spot on corn. But back to corn. So this disease, tar spot on corn has been known in Central and South of Mexico, um, Central, let's, let's back up. So tar spot's been known in Central America, Southern Mexico, and parts of South America for a very long time. And it was first found in the U.S. Like about six years ago in Illinois and Indiana. And it was a surprise. That was the first time it's ever been found in the United States. And it had never been found in Canada. So it had traveled a long way from any place that had been known to exist. And the other interesting thing about this is the research from you know, those Southern areas, again, Central America, South America, Southern Mexico, uh, suggested that two different fungi are needed to cause significant damage to the corn. Now, when the initial studies were done of tar spot found in Indiana and Illinois, again, you know, about five, five or six years ago, only one of those fungi was found. And it was suspected that, well, maybe it won't be very damaging because only the one fungus is there. Well, we've since found that that other fungus, that other companion fungus, if we want to call it that, that's been reported from those other countries, isn't here, but it's also not needed here for tar spot to cause significant damage. So that was an interesting finding and uh, maybe a bit surprising to a lot of people. 
but it still is the case. No one has ever found that other kind of companion fungus. So again, just to back up, the disease was found there. Now, ever since then, it's been spreading across the Midwest and primarily north. It's not moving south very much. But as, as you mentioned, I think it's, you know, it's in Illinois, Indiana. It's been found in, as I can say, in Southern, especially Southeastern Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana. That's primarily the area where it's known so far, although I think it's also been found in Florida. Um, so, and a few other places now too, as I think about it, it's moving east. So there's, there's a lot that's not known about this disease and, and the fungus. And you know, for example, you asked how do these pathogens, diseases move around? You know, very likely this is moving in part by wind, part by moving infected plant material around. You know, beyond that, we don't have a lot of evidence to say exactly how it moves around. We know that once a field is infested, that field certainly is uh, at greater risk of developing tar spot in the future because the pathogen is there. It overwinters in, in cold winters in the upper Midwest. So I think some folks were hopeful initially that since it wasn't um, acclimated, we thought to really cold climates, it may not overwinter, but that turned out not to be true. It seems overwinter quite nicely here, unfortunately. A cold weather doesn't kill it, which is true of most fungi actually. But the disease again causes these black spots. Sometimes you can see thousands and thousands of them, or at least hundreds and hundreds on a leaf. And it kills the whole leaf, it can kill an entire plant. So again, it's been spreading, it's a concern. We don't know how far it will spread or how far it will be a significant problem. You know, when we talked about the disease triangle a few minutes ago, the disease triangle is important for this disease tar spot as it is for virtually every other disease. So the disease really needs some moisture and it prefers cooler conditions than a lot of our summers have. So if we have very dry summers like, like this one in many areas of the Midwest, um, you know, it's not going to likely be a significant problem in those dry areas, but in years that are cool and wet, frequent rains, you know, it could be a, a significant problem. One thing we're, we're watching it very carefully. It's interesting, kind of, this disease is probably one of the most aptly named diseases that are out there in some ways. You had mentioned it looks like little black flecks, and that's really exactly what it looks like is you drove down a hot asphalt road with your car on a hot summer day, and you can look at those black spots all over the, by the wheels of your car, and that's really about what it looks like on a plant leaf. Pretty high concentration of them in a lot of cases. Can we talk just a little bit about management of this disease? I know the research is still ongoing. In our current germplasm that's adapted to this part of the country, there doesn't seem to be a lot of resistance there to this disease. It can somewhat maybe be managed through fungicide application. Um, are there cultural practices or what are you seeing about managing this disease? Yeah, I think right now in the, in, at the present time in the near future, the primary means of managing tarnasbat will be the use of fungicide applications. And fortunately, a lot of it seems that a lot of fungicides that are already available are, are fairly effective against it. So, so we have tools. 
to help us fight it. And, and this is one of these diseases that the potential is there to you know, scout for it and then respond, I think. Um, although the early symptoms aren't always easy to find because these black spot specks sometimes are not easy to find in a field. But nonetheless, I think fungicide applications are gonna be a very useful tool for, for some time. And as you said, our corn hybrids, at least most of them, maybe all of them, um, they really don't have high levels of resistance to tar spot, at, at least at this point in time, those that are adapted to the upper Midwest. Now, I understand you know, in Central America, for example, there are corn hybrids grown there that have resistance, they have bread resistance. So there, there definitely is the potential, I think, based on that knowledge that, that we can develop good levels of resistance to tar spot too, which will diminish or recruit, release, reduce the need for fungicides over time. I think we are discovering though, even though we haven't bred corn directly for resistance in our up in Midwest, at least not to any great extent, there are differences in susceptibility. And that information is, is, is being gathered here over time as the disease is developing in more fields and more testing can be done. But that won't eliminate the disease, but it can greatly reduce you know, the damage and the yield loss that it might cause if we have a hybrid that is you know, much less susceptible than others. One thing Press and I have talked about a few times, we've had a, a few episodes on plant breeding and kind of the history of corn and how some of these things develop over time. And one concept that some of our listeners may have remembered is that we can go to germplasm from around the world and sometimes find a resistance to a disease. So this would be an example that would have the potential for that. Long-term plant breeders may be able to find resistance in uh, corn hybrids that are adapted to, say, South America or Mexico or wherever it may be, that those hybrids themselves may not grow well here in the Midwest but we can take advantage of that resistance and, and over time bring that into our existing hybrids that we hear or new hybrids that we have that are adapted to here in the Midwest. And um, I don't know where that stands at this point. We're pretty early on with this disease, but um, we could imagine, you know, kind of like you mentioned with Goss's wilt, um, a process by which we would get some good resistance over the course of the next five to 10 years, maybe. No, I think you're exactly right. You know, the advantage of, of Goss's wilt is that the disease, there, there was, there were active uh, breeding programs for it, you know, even before the disease became so widespread, because it wasn't a brand new disease, you know, in the early 2000s, um, well, in 2010 or so when it became so prevalent. But, but here at Tarspot, we're working a little bit more from ground zero with the exception of these what we know from other countries, like we've just talked about. So I think that the promise is there for sure. I think there's reason to be optimistic. Dean, to kind of dial in a little bit, I'm curious, you mentioned some of the, some of the effects of tar spot. I, what's, what would be like a worst case scenario? Have you seen fields like you mentioned, you know, a few plants here and there die. Have you seen like a, a worst case scenario or do you have any way, like any approximate potential yield loss associated with this disease? So in Minnesota, um, I'm, I'm going to start there and then I'm going to broaden it out. But, you know, it's relatively new and we haven't seen a lot of real high levels of the disease yet. Although I do have to say that there were fields in southeastern Minnesota last fall, 2020, that were very significantly affected. Fortunately, they were probably, the disease reached high levels late enough that, that the crop was pretty much made. In, in other words, the ears were 
pretty well filled and, and the kernels were pretty much getting close to maturity. So the disease didn't have a huge impact on yield and hasn't yet in Minnesota. Now in other states, that's different. A number of my colleagues from other states, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan especially, they have looked at potential yield loss. A few years ago, there was, there, there was widespread significant damage from tar spot because of the weather patterns, again, that favored it, especially in some areas. And, you know, the, the numbers are, are hard, but we can, we can perhaps get up to 25% yield loss. Um, and maybe we're, maybe we could get close to 40 or 50 bushels an acre. Um, those numbers are, are kind of hard to, to get at. But you know, it could be reaching that level in some fields and, and maybe even a little more. At the very least, very significant. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's an extreme level of, of yield loss. Well, Dean, yeah, we appreciate that you covering tar spot. I was curious, too, about your current research. Can you describe some of your research projects you're currently involved in? Yeah, I can kind of kind of list those. And since we're talking about corn right now, I'll mention one of the projects we've been working on is, is actually a bacterial disease of sweet corn called bacterial leaf streak. Another new disease, as far as we know, that came into the U.S. in about 2016. And uh, it, it seems a bigger, bigger problem on sweet corn, at least around southern Minnesota than it is on field corn, although it, it is, does occur in both of them. So, so we're trying to understand a little bit more about that disease. And um, you know, we're, we're doing some work on tar spot as well. And on soybean, been doing a lot of work on this disease called sudden death syndrome, uh, how to manage that, especially with seed treatments and combining seed treatments with varietal resistance. And then working on a disease called brown stem rot, another fungal disease on, on soybean. And recently we've done a lot of work on rhizoctonia. It's another fungal disease on, on soybean. And uh, have more generally done some work on seed treatments, fungicides used as seed treatments to manage various problems, including some of the diseases I just mentioned. So that's, those are some of the, the projects we're working on right now. I think just the scope of your projects probably is surprising to some people to even, you know, we, we've kind of been talking about plant diseases, but to even think about what a wide range there are. And you're just kind of scratching the surface with some of your research. Obviously you have to focus on certain diseases and there's a whole lot more out there. There are, and, and I should mention, we're also working on a disease called white mold on, on soybean, which is a widespread significant problem and has been for a very long time. And not only, again, this is not only disease white mold on soybean, but dry edible beans, it's a very big problem. Sometimes on peas, sometimes on canola and, and some other crops as well. So, so we're doing some work on that one too, trying to understand management practices and how well they, they work. We really appreciate your time here today, Dean. You've been very generous with it. We appreciate that. Um, we always like to wrap up our interviews with it, allow the guests to kind of talk about what is exciting about the future of agriculture. So from your mm -hmm. perspective, either from your pathology mindset or from a different perspective, what is most exciting to you that's coming down the road in agriculture? That, that's a really good question. I, I think, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is the new tools that are becoming available. You know, we've talked a bit about plant breeding 
you know, the plant breeding with genomics and genomic selection, genetic selection, certainly progress can be made faster than it ever was before in breeding for resistance, breeding for improved yields, breeding for drought resistance, for example. And so that, that's exciting, I think. Um, and so a lot more knowledge is, is, is coming along in that way to help develop better crops from a, a breeding and a genetic perspective. And then, you know, tools that are also on, on the horizon and also partly here, things like the use of uh, drones or, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles to scout crops and diagnose diseases and remote sensing. Some of those kinds of tools will be very helpful, I think. A lot of them are in development stages and there's a lot of work going on. It will help us diagnose diseases and figure out where they are and how much problem they are causing. And ultimately, I think will help with management. So there's a, those are a couple, couple of things. And of course, the whole big data aspect and pulling lots of information together um, to help us understand the big picture of, of what's affecting crop growth and how we can manage fields and areas and crops better. I think, I think that brings lots of excitement and lots of potential. Those are the first things that come to my mind. Well, Dean, the future definitely seems bright in the world of pathology. I want to sneak one more quick question in. So you're obviously you're an academic. Uh, a lot of our listeners are students um, that are maybe trying to kind of consider which, which part of, you know, crop science or, or maybe they just want to have, you know, a broad agronomic background. Uh, do you have any recommendations for students who are maybe interested in um, pathology? It sounds like there's job security. In the field, there, 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 there is. You know, there is, there is jobs for those who want to focus on pathology. There's, there's a need for, I think, you know, more knowledge and expertise in, in a, a general agronomist type position as well. I, I'd say, you know, generally when I've been in this profession and doing this work, working with egg professionals, crop consultants, agronomists, etc. Um, you know, there's a whole variety and levels of expertise, but I would say uh, on the average, um, there's, there's more knowledge about weed science and entomology than there is about plant pathology. So there's always a need for continuing education there and making sure uh, somebody who's interested in general aspects to, to make sure to take a course or two in plant pathology. It will be helpful in the long run. But again, there are opportunities for plant pathologists too, with, with lots of companies and, and, and different avenues there too. So many of the universities across the country, including the University of Minnesota, have master's and PhD programs in, in plant pathology and opportunities there for students for different kinds of research and experiences. So not only Minnesota, but you know, all the other land-grant universities too. So there are ample opportunities at, at various levels um, related to plant pathology and certainly needs in the future to address some of the problems and, that we talked about as well as others that we know about or don't even know about yet. Great. Well, Dean, we really appreciate your time here with us today. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been great talking with you. And, uh, this is a great topic to talk about. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.